0: I'm excited we're uh, kicking off a new series we're out of Game of Thrones some of you guys are, are thrilled about that um, we are wrapping up with uh, an eight-week series called Game of Thrones that we went through uh, King David with the life of King David and uh, so great great series learned a lot about leadership lessons life lessons some very good things and also some very tragic things that happened to his life Um, And uh, so we're going to pivot, and we're going to pivot and look at conflict, because if there's one thing in David's life that he never seemed to get a good hold of, it was how to solve conflict. And I would argue that if there's one thing that Christians really just struggle with as well, it's conflict. Jacob, you might want to just turn me down a bit. Um, It's conflict, and I I think— in some ways, even Christians, we look like atheists when it comes to conflict. It's like the living God that is in heaven and ruling in our hearts and lives, we just toss him out the window when it comes to conflict. And so we're going to start to unpack that, and we've titled this series Peacemakers. And the whole goal of the Peacemaker series is to, to jump on board the Easter narrative and see how Christ came and handled the conflict in his world and his life. And maybe by learning some lessons from Christ, from conflict management, we can look more and more like the people of God. And so I'd love to just share with you guys a simple goal for this entire series, Peacemaker series. It's to know ourselves, to know others, to know Christ. And I feel like if we can do that, what we will be able to do is be able to become the people of God who breathe grace into conflict. That doesn't mean you get pushed over. That doesn't mean there's not consequences from conflict. doesn't mean that resolution doesn't happen, but we breathe grace into conflict. We see a redemption element in conflict. And I, I think that's where all of us are at, right? Some of you guys, you guys might be having conflict in your life. Maybe it's a past conflict, maybe it's a current conflict. Maybe your relationship with one of your children isn't where you'd like it. Maybe your relationship with your spouse is struggling right now. Maybe you've just buried some things because it's easier to not go there than to resolve or manage the conflict. Again, I I don't know, Jacob, if you just want to turn me down, I can speak a little louder. Um, but I wanted to share my first conflict because I think it helps us understand how we're wired for conflict. So I remember very clearly my first conflict was in first grade, okay? It was in Italian school. This is, again, the one that I remember, okay? there's probably tons of conflict before then. My kids fight all the time. Um, they're not going to remember it when they're old. So parents, just think about that. Um, but it was with my twin sister, and I remember... We're, we're doing homework, we're doing tests, we're doing quizzes in school, and she sits next to me and she keeps looking over and taking my answers. She keeps cheating off of me. And so as a big brother, uh, that's what I like to think of myself, even though we're twins. As a big brother, I'm like, I'll, you know, this is okay for a little bit, but she keeps doing it. And so finally, I'm going to put the foot down, I'm going to tell the teacher, I'm going to get her in trouble. And Italian school, those nuns that run those schools, they, they mean business. And so she got in trouble. And I remember like, yes. Like, that's what you get. You don't cheat off me. And then like three minutes later, this searing sharp pain erupts in my back because my sister stabbed me. <laughs> she did it with this like little pin thing that you wear. That's my first conflict. But what's really interesting about that conflict, and of course, I was just, this was like, How dare she? This set up us competing as kids, as going through childhood, so much so that our parents even separated us, grade levels, so we wouldn't compete against each other. I didn't realize at the time, but some things were going on in first grade that I didn't know. One, my sister, you know, women develop at a faster rate than than, than guys do. Her eyesight, she was nearsighted. So I didn't know that she couldn't even see The chalkboard. The other thing that we kind of discovered, and my sister, she's an awesome, young, talented, professional, but she she had to overcome a learning disability, and 25 years ago, that was just kind of cutting edge of that field. And so she's struggling with a learning disability. She's struggling with being able to see, and here I am selling her out. Uh, From her perspective, her big brother that she trusts and loves, that she's hoping has got her back, that she's hoping to be able to help her with things, just sold her out. You see what happens in conflict? Sometimes we don't have the full picture. Proverbs 18, 17 says, in in a lawsuit, the first to speak, the first to open their mouth seems right, until someone comes along and cross-examines them. Isn't that true in conflict, too? So what is conflict? What is conflict? Let's just start with some definitions before we dive into some text and before we even dive into some personality things. So what is conflict? I'd love to start with like a simple, big definition, like 30,000 feet, huge definition, maybe even like a definition from space. Conflict is just a collision of opposing forces. You can kind of wire any conflict into that. It's just a collision of forces. In fact, the Greek word for conflict, polemos, we get the word for polemical or poles, Right, Two opposing sides, two opposing poles. And that's what conflict is. But conflict, if we look at it, it's not just two sides of something. Conflict robs us of immeasurable time, energy, money, opportunities, but most important, relationships. Conflict robs us of relationships. And I would argue that even conflict is one of the greatest sources of anxiety, of depression, of mental health in this country. We don't know how to handle conflict. We don't know how to deal with conflict. We don't even know how to talk about conflict. So why does conflict happen? There's um, a couple CEOs. They put together a book called Crucial Conversations. And they looked at conflict in the workplace. And they said, conflict in the workplace, conflict in the boardroom starts because opinions vary, emotions run strong, and stakes are high. I think you can apply those things not just to the boardroom, but to the living room, the bedroom, to every other room in your life where you have conflict. In. Opinions vary, emotions run strong, and stakes are high. Especially when there's a deadline. When you have to make a decision, man, conflict really escalates. Conflict also escalates when authority increases. But why does conflict really happen? Let's, let's let's turn to um, James 4, verses 1 through 3. We're going to look quickly at why conflict really happens. He says this, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your evil desires. In James, the brother of Jesus, James had conflict with Jesus. In fact, he thinks Jesus should go and reveal himself and be the Messiah because James thinks Jesus is phony, a fake Messiah. He later believes in Jesus. Jesus comes to him. He believes, and all of a sudden, he realizes the conflict in his life What it really comes down to is pride. It comes down to pride. And here, here's what I say pride. Pride is, and and I'll, I'll make it for myself. Pride is my data, my knowledge, my interpretive framework is better, greater than yours. And so, guess what? I'm right. That is at the core of the issue where conflict stems from. And James nails it. It comes from our pride. And what James is doing even uh, in this this passage is he is trying to get his audience to understand not just where conflict comes from then, currently, but where it originated from. The language that he's trying to get his audience His his audience to see, and he does this so many times. it's, It's really uncanny. In his book, in his epistle, he takes them back to the garden. What was the evil desire that Eve had? She saw that the apple looked good. She saw that the fruit looked good, and so she ate it. What was the evil desire that Adam had? The same thing that Eve, except for Adam, was like the guy who was like, you do it first, and everything goes okay. I'll follow you. then what happens? The two initial sins we bring back to Genesis, coveting and murder happen. So James is telling his audience, listen, we're in this place, conflict is here because we coveted the things of God and we murdered in order to get them. So let's Let's jump back out. We've, we've kind of talked about conflict a little bit. Let's jump, let's jump to Jesus. Let's look at the world that he steps into. And again, I think this will help us clarify. Again, conflict sources pride, but what we're talking about today is just missed expectations. And so conflict in the first century, the Jews were being occupied. The land of Israel was being occupied by the Romans. This was a brutal, taxing, and oppressive reign. In fact several years before Christ comes onto the scene, the Roman government decided to crucify 2,000 Jews for for resistance and then place their bodies every 30 or 40 feet on the way into Jerusalem during a feast. So the entire people of God would have to see their countrymen killed and crucified. And in all of this, the Jews are asking one question. Where is God? Where is the promised Messiah? Where is the one who's going to deliver us from all of this? Where is he? Because they knew their scriptures. They knew what Daniel said. They knew. The Messiah was going to come soon because the Romans were the fourth kingdom talked about in Daniel. So they don't know when, but they know it's coming soon. It's intensifying their expectations. So stakes are high, emotions run strong, and opinions vary. And so we see four sects come out. The first sect is the zealots. And this sect of Jews, they were like your freedom fighters, your violent guerrillas. They wanted to repel force with force. The Messiah is going to come, and he's going to be at the, the, the head of an army, and he's going to crush our enemies, and we're going to join him. We're going to be like not the Avengers, but like the people who are following, following the Avenger. You know th- that, That's who they believe themselves to be. And they viewed a conflict style, how to solve conflict, they viewed it competitively. Again, we're going to talk about five ways, uh, five styles of solving conflict. They viewed that competitively. It's a, it's a us or them mentality. The second group are the Essenes. The Essenes were, uh, they believed in, in, in soaking and learning righteousness, and that they believed in kind of just withdrawing from everything. The world is so jacked up, We're going to become like little hermit communities. We're going to escape from everything. Their style of conflict was avoidance. And, And some of these should connect with you guys. You guys have these same styles of solving conflict. Some of you guys are even sitting there like, yeah, I avoid things. I run from conflict. The third group is the Sadducees. And they were kind of like your deal makers, love to make deals, they make friends, they shake hands, they kiss babies. Like, I kind of think of just a used car salesman, like you don't know what you're getting into, and then like the ink's been signed. So they made lots of deals with the Romans, and they were all about accommodating. Let's accommodate, let's, let's, let's live together peacefully. And then we have our Pharisees. And Pharisees, they yielded and tolerated Rome but they separated themselves from Rome. That's exactly what the word means. They compromised with Rome and said, we're not going to accommodate you. We're not going to avoid you. We're not going to compete with you. We're going to compromise with you. You guys take care of the political stuff. We're going to separate ourselves, make ourselves clean, make ourselves pure, so that when the Messiah comes back, He's going to see a people living in the world, but not of the world. He's going to see people who are righteous about the law. And sometimes we we read um, scripture and we're always like, you know, the Pharisees, gosh, who would have followed them? Let me, like, give you guys a little input. The Pharisees, they were actually the cool party in Jesus' day. There's over 6,000 Pharisee teachers in the land of Israel. You wanted to follow a Pharisee. They actually found ways to compromise with the law so it was easier for you to follow God. That's what you wanted. They brought the standard of the law lower for you in order to follow them. They were the cool people that you wanted to be with. We always criticize them, make fun of them, you know, gang up with Jesus against them. And sometimes we don't realize that they they were the cool crowd. It kind of makes us maybe begin to step back and say, uh uh-oh, are we cool Christians now? Would Jesus have anything sharp or hard to say against us? And so these these are just styles of of managing conflict, of solving conflict. But Christ enters into this picture, and he brings a new style. He's not going to do any of these. He's actually going to collaborate. And we'll unpack what that means. But if you look at the interactions that Christ has, Christ collaborates with Roman centurions, he collaborates with Gentile foreigners. He collaborates with the weak and outcast of society. And we're going to examine just a, a passage, just gonna be a primary text for, for this morning of Christ interacting with the Pharisees. He's interacting with the cool crowd. And so if you have a, uh, if you have your Bible, John 3, 1 through 10. And so we're gonna just read this story. um, We're gonna read half of it. And then we're gonna stop. So we talked about conflict styles, but we all have conflict personalities as well. Some of this stuff is just great research done by Myers-Briggs, by some other social psychologists. And and so what I want us to do, again, the goal of our series is to breathe grace into conflict, to know ourselves, to know others, and to know Christ. So we're going to read some of this, and then we're going to jump into what those eight conflict personalities look like for the purpose of you guys not being able to say, oh, that's who that person is, that's who that person is. Right? Knowledge puffs up. The purpose is so you can figure out who you are. If you can figure out who you are, then you have a much better shot at navigating and handling conflict in a way that breathes grace into it, in a way that brings the redemption of Christ back into it. So let's just read. There's a man, again, John 3, verse 1. There's a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The man came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi. We know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But how can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. How can these things be? asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replied. Stop. So we already see kind of the shaping up of, of a possible conflict here. Right, Pharisee on one side, Jesus on the other. Pharisee with expectations for who the Messiah is going to be. And so let's look at some conflict personalities. Again, the goal is conflict personalities. We're going to go through eight of them. We're going to go through them really quick. Um, you can write some notes down. Um, but the goal is, n- is not so you're like, I know exactly who my spouse is <laughs> or who my child is. And honestly, perhaps some of you embody one or two different of these personalities, and they're a little bit more nuanced. So again, this is just providing a snapshot, a jumping off point. Hopefully, it provides you with some revelation of some things that you might need to take care of in your life as you approach your next conflict. Um, But let's start. Um, Let's start and let's look at the critic. The critic is the first conflict personality. The critic, they constantly complain and they offer unsolicited advice. You probably heard this phrase, just being honest. That's like what the critic loves to say. I'm just being honest. They're nitpicky. They believe their criticism is helpful. They're bossy. Oftentimes they're they're actually pretty knowledgeable. And they've probably been raised around criticism in their life. And so it's it's an acceptable form of just continuous contact for them. So that's a description of them. How do we deal with the critic? Well, if that's you, face the critic within. Again, that's what we're going to come at in every single one of these. Is if this is you, you got to face that person within. It's not a bad thing that you have this Conflict personality. We're talking about some of the darker sides of these things, but at the end of the day, conflict is not bad. Jesus uses this conflict with Nicodemus to redemptively give him a vision of what's going to happen. Conflict is not bad. So again, the prescription you face the critic within, oftentimes you realize that critics, they're masking some kind of pain. Listen. Listen to the real issue. You want to pair with the positive. Oftentimes, someone will have a criticism. You can offer a positive comment as well. Draw boundaries with the critic. They don't get to criticize everything. And then keep focused and help a critic keep focused. So again, if that's you, just kind of absorb that in your heart. If you think that's the person next to you, don't look over at them and try to make eye contact, all right? I know some of you all spouses are sitting together. We don't want to have any conflict erupt in church, okay? The martyr. Let's talk about the martyr. The martyr is forever the victim, right? Full of self-pity. Kind of if you think like Eeyore, Winnie the Pooh. That's the martyr. Description, they're defeated. They're self-blaming oftentimes they take on way too much. Because if they take on too much, guess what? They're always going to get attention. They're worried and anxious. Um, sometimes they go from being ultra-depressed to ultra-elated. And then they, I think at the core, they have this fear of insignificance. If people aren't noticing my sacrifice, then I've got to do more. So the prescription is you got to face the martyr within yourself. Laugh. Um, recognize self-pity and stay close to optimist. Also for martyr, don't give advice to martyrs. It's just going to tailspin or they're just going to take it and, and, and overwhelm themselves even more. And that's a hard thing for us to do, right? We're trying to help them, but don't give advice to them. And then what's really important is refuse to go farther with a martyr down their path of martyrdom. They need to learn. So refuse to go down that path with them. The cynic, the cynic, similar to the critic, but they bring down the energy and enthusiasm in the room. It's just like they put a damper on things. Oftentimes they're pessimistic and melancholy. They, they can kind of contaminate the whole environment they're defensive they're raised in negativity oftentimes so for them being negative isn't something that they notice they have a me versus the world mentality it's almost like bruce willis versus everybody else in all of his movies ever i mean that's that's kind of the cynic and they have a basic struggle with trust so what's the prescription if, if that's you or if that's someone that you, you know, face that cynic within. You want to guard against infection. You want to give them constructive suggestions. Just reorient their cynicism towards constructive things. And then don't let them determine your mood. You're in control of your mood. Don't let them control your mood. Keep going. And then one of the best things to do with cynics is ask, hey, where does that comment come from? You know, I really appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. Let's move forward with a positive thought. Because you're listening to them, you're hearing them. And oftentimes, cynics, they're saying these things because maybe no one's ever really listened to them. And so it's just this plea for someone to notice them. So ask where that's coming from. Appreciate that thought and turn it to the positive. The bully bully, blindly insensitive to others and mean. That sounds really bad. Like the bully out of all of them it's just like, oh, nobody likes bullies. Description, they're arrogant, they're independent, they're rude, they've been wounded oftentimes. Maybe it's in their relationship or maybe it's from childhood. But their behavior is universal. It's not like they're just like pick one person to bully. Oftentimes It's just how they deal with people. They're stubborn. So prescription for them. Face the bully within. Also acknowledge their difficulty. Sometimes they just have the hardest path to change because they don't know what to do. Don't get in a power struggle with bullies. Be firm with them. Sometimes it's okay to lose with dignity with bullies. And in fact, sometimes when you lose with dignity, it kind of shocks them. Because they're in it for the power play, and you just pivot the whole struggle and say, hey, that's okay. I'll let you have that one. They, They don't know what to do. And then propose potential alternatives so they can be excited about going in a new direction. The manipulator... The manipulator controls others with information and negotiation. So the description of them, they're talkative. They're a little secretive, self-righteous. They're negative. They gossip. They're always controlling information. Maybe they felt manipulated in a conflict or as a child, and so they see people as kind of pawns. The prescription again, is always recognize the manipulator within. One thing that's helped us speak up and ask for proof in a situation. If you feel like you're being manipulated with information, just who said that? Wh- where did that come from? Ask for proof. Create your own climate of words. Some that's just drawing boundaries with words. We're not going to talk about that person. We're not going to talk about what they do. We're going to talk about us. Always cast people and frame people in a good light. You're amazed at how healthy this is for our, your soul, but also for your conversations. And then cut off a conversation when you feel like there's the person that you guys are talking about should probably be with you in the room. It's the easiest way to not throw wood on the fire, to not gossip cut off the conversation as soon as possible. we got two more. The controller. The controller controller is someone who's unable to let go and let be. If you think even like controller, that's like the fake news. They're obsessive, they're demanding, they're tenacious. Sometimes they have a fear of intimacy or abandonment. Often life is one big conquest. They've got to control everything. I feel like controllers, like, if you want to get a good picture of what a controller is, play a video game. That's what they like doing. They like pushing all the buttons on the controls of people so that they accomplish leveling up or looking good or winning. That's what controllers do. And then sometimes they're practically atheists. As they kind of separate God from conflict, from relationships, because they're the ones in control. How do we deal with controllers? Again, sometimes the best way is you you just look in the mirror and you're like, I'm the controller. I've got to face that within. You give controllers lots of information. You're bringing in new information, new data, so they don't control the flow of information. You also negotiate your role. Who are you in this relationship? So they know that you can't be controlled. Let them know when they've crossed a line or when to move on. And then prove you're trustworthy. Again, they're seeking to control because they, they don't have a whole lot of trust. Prove that you're trustworthy. All right. Volcano. Everybody loves that picture, right? The volcano. He's like, oh, he's going to talk about people who are angry. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, so Volcano. That's someone who just dominates conflict with anger, who's explosive, right? If we just look back at the first century, that that would be your zealots, right? We're angry, and we're going to fight back against Rome. The description of them, they're fault finders. They're selfish and vengeful. Sometimes their anger is a defense mechanism, though, and that's important to realize. They might have untreated wounds. They also are mistrusting And you'll hear them say, like, you've got a lot of nerve. Some of your parents are like, uh uh-oh, I said that to my kids last night. Or sometimes they'll say, the next time you do that. Again, sometimes we all have aspects of these things. But how do we deal with them? Again, facing the volcano within is important. Um, Don't be a scapegoat for their anger. Sometimes also appreciate their contribution. Sometimes it can be a healthy thing to say, you know, I understand you're angry. This is really good. So let's talk about that anger. What are you angry about? Appreciate that they're passionate and emotional about something. Also, there's one other, under the description, there's one other thing that angry people say sometimes. If you're if you're a married man, you'll know this. When your wife says, I'm fine, i leave it there. Um, prescription for when you deal with angry people. Understand the real battle of what's going on. And then also, one of the hardest things to do is surrendering your right to hit back with anger. That's hard. Also, learn how to help l- let off steam. Oftentimes, angry people, that steam can be let off far before a conflict happens. All right, last one, the passive-aggressive person. The passive-aggressive person, they hide anger. Then they lash out, and then they're calm. So the description of them, sometimes they're sullen or pouty. They believe that it's best to hide feelings. They mask their pain and emotion. Again, it's all good. I'm fine. Everything's okay until it's not. They're a blame shifter. And then what's really interesting, passive aggressive people, most of the time they enjoy the conflict. And the reason why they enjoy the conflict is they think they have the upper hand. They've suffered and they've borne under the weight of all these injustices, and now it's their turn to speak up and speak truth. And they are right. So the, pre- the prescription is face the passive aggressive person within. Create healthy outlets. Refuse to be manipulated by their late feelings. Refuse to be manipulated by their late feelings because oftentimes they're trying to get a rise out of you, so that guess what? All of their anger and all of their aggressiveness is justified. Figure out ways to deflate the crisis. Also, call it out for what it is and cool it down. Hey, I feel like you're getting really aggressive about this. That's good. Let's just call it out. You're way too aggressive. How can we talk about this? Just call it out, cool it down. All right, back to Nicodemus. We've looked at kind of these conflict personalities. What I want you guys to do actually is really interesting. The person kind of next to you, I want you guys to take actually one or two minutes and talk about Nicodemus. Don't talk about yourselves. Talk about Nicodemus. What kind of conflict personality did he have? He got a lot to choose from. So, what kind of conflict personality did he have? So, go ahead and do that right now. Give you guys two minutes. What was Nicodemus's conflict personality? Go. Take about 20 seconds. Make your final vote, your final answer to one another. Cool. Let's finish reading the rest of the story. We've got four more verses to read. Again, jumping back to the text, John 3. In verse 11, we're going to read the rest of the story and we're going to figure out who Nicodemus was and then we're going to figure out what Jesus' solution and remedy to his personality and his style of conflict was. So verse 11 in John 3. I assure you we speak what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about things that happen on earth and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about things of heaven? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have like kind of the, who wants to be a millionaire? What was Nicodemus's conflict personality? I think Nicodemus was a blend of two. He was a blend of a manipulator and a controller. So if you got those, that's just what I think. Um, Why do I think that? Well, he was pseudo-secretive. He comes to Jesus at night. He's talkative. He's self-righteous as a Pharisee. He's demanding answers. He's obsessive. And he's possibly looking to compromise. And again, that's what the Pharisees were all about. They were looking to compromise and control. Because if they controlled the climate and people of Israel and were holy enough and righteous enough, then the Messiah would come back and liberate them and free them. So how did Jesus handle Nicodemus? Well, just with what we've read, Jesus confronted Nicodemus with lots of new information. The next thing he did, Jesus created his own climate of words. We see this beautiful dialogue. It's almost a speech that John narrates for us of what Jesus did you know what? I'm, I'm trying to think when I look at this, how in the world would John have known about a secret meeting with Nicodemus at night and what was said? Jesus could have told him, but I think there's a better answer. And we're going to get to that answer. The last thing that Jesus did, I think he proved himself trustworthy to Nicodemus. And we're going to look at how he did that. In verse 11. So Jesus, we know, Jesus doesn't come to avoid things. Jesus doesn't come to compromise. Jesus doesn't come to compete with the Romans. And he doesn't come to accommodate. He comes to collaborate. And this question we have to ask ourselves in this passage, because Jesus is meeting with Nicodemus and vice versa, is who is Jesus collaborating? If Jesus is collaborating in this passage, then with who? And the hint is it's not Nicodemus. And so then you start really scratching your head, and you're like, I thought this was a secret meeting at night between only Jesus and Nicodemus. Verse 11 is the key to this. Verse 11 says this. And again, Jesus says, I assure you. In other words, saying Verily, verily, this is true. He says, We speak what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. Jesus gives him five, in Greek, five third plural participles. All you need to know about that is third pr- plural. I don't speak in third plural. I imagine most of you don't speak in third plural. That's like the royal we. Jesus is speaking on behalf of the Father and of the Spirit and of the Son. And he is saying this. He is saying we speak, we know, we testify, and we have seen how to win back the lost sheep of Israel and the rest of humanity. And let me give you that information right now. And then what Jesus does is so cool. Because at this point, if you're Nicodemus, you're like, I'm about ready to stone you. But Jesus pulls back the veil of the Old Testament. How does he earn Nicodemus' trust? By going into the Old Testament. He references two things. He says that he is the son of man. That he alone is going to descend and ascend. Just like Daniel prophetically foretold. And then he goes back and saying, he is going to be lifted up for all of Israel to see. Just like when they were in the wilderness complaining about God and when God was going to bring them to the promised land. Do you see that contextual connection? The people of God are complaining in the wilderness, dying off in the wilderness and wondering when will we come into the promised land. They complain so much that they begin to be afflicted by a plague. And it's not until Moses casts the image of of, of a snake, of death, and they look at that image and they have faith that they live. Again, what is the greatest image of death in the ancient world at that time? Crucifixion. We're going to look, as we follow this Eastern narrative, Christ is crucified. It means that the, the very image of God, humanity, Christ, sinless and perfect, he's going to be robbed of breath, robbed of the spirit. That's how you die in crucifixion. You literally become so fatigued, so pain racked, so tired, that you can't even fill your own lungs with oxygen. And what Jesus is saying to people who have lost their ability to breathe in the things of God and the salvation of God, he says, I am going to lose my breath so that, and he tells this to Nicodemus, so that the Spirit of God may breathe back life into you. Wow. Jesus Christ being robbed of breath so that we can have breath back. This is what's going on. Jesus is foretelling the beauty of the gospel to Nicodemus. And this is our redemptive view of conflict. God, breathing back into our life, forgiving us so that we may give grace to others and point back to him. Again, what was our goal? Entire goal this morning: to become the people of God who breathe grace back into conflict, to know ourselves, to know others, and to know Christ. So the stories end. The story's not done. John has two other references to Nicodemus. In verse 50 of john 7 the pharisees and other religious leaders wanted to kill jesus right away but nicodemus the one who previously being one of them said to them our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing does it you aren't from galilee too are you they replied investigate and you'll see that no one no one prophet arises from galilee Again, there are the Pharisees trying to control and manipulate everything, and here's Nicodemus taking a stand. Saying our law doesn't permit us to do that. Let's keep going. John 19, immediately after Christ has died. In verse 38, after this, Joseph of Amarathia, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission so that he took his body away. Nicodemus, so what John says, who had previously come to him at night, also came. I love how Scott shared this whole theme that's going on in in the book of John. There's light versus darkness. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. But here in John, we see Nicodemus speaking openly to the Pharisees, defending Jesus, and then Jesus openly going to get It says, Nicodemus also came, bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Then they took Jesus' body, wrapped it in linen cloths with the aromatic spices, according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus there because the Jewish preparation day and since the tomb was empty. understand quite fully what Nicodemus did. He basically cut himself off from the Jews in this one moment, identifying himself as a follower of Jesus because he cut himself off from the Passover and the festival because he was willing to touch an unclean, dead body. In this moment, Nicodemus has identified himself with Christ. Not with the Pharisees, not with the Jews, but with Christ. So a few takeaways for you, and um, again, we've we've been building, we're going to be building this series. So this is all about missed expectations, some styles of conflict, but also some personality styles. But here's your takeaway and for your conflict personality. Either the secret will kill the disciple, or the disciple will kill the secret. Nicodemus was a controller, a manipulator. That's how he handled conflict. Either that secret is going to kill you in your relationships, or you're going to allow your identity with Jesus Christ to kill that style of conflict that you have. And then let's look at conflict style. Collaboration is far better than avoidance accommodation and thanks be to god that he shows us what collaboration was because jesus knowing the hearts of men did not entrust himself to men jesus knew all about conflict he entrusted himself to the full plan of god and so the beautiful thing about that is we have that plan it's been revealed to us and we were called to believe in jesus christ to, to believe in the image lifted up for us on the cross image not of death but of peace so what's next what's next is the storm Frank will be coming back and talk about how to handle conflict in the middle of the storm see we, I've given you guys some tools but what if you're just in the middle of it what if conflict is raging around you what's next let's pray father we just thank you Lord for uh, your grace Lord we thank you that you have died upon the cross for us. That you gave up your breath so that you could breathe breath into us. Lord, I pray that we would be the people of God who begin to, to breathe grace into conflict, Lord. Help us to examine first our own lives. Lord, help us to point and look to you. Lord, we thank you for this time. Amen.